Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Product Led Podcast. I'm super excited to have John here, head of growth at Speed Invest, Europe's largest early stage VC. Uh, he's followed several startups and found his way to growth. And now, as we joke, he's on the dark side of the table. John, yeah. how's it going, man? <laughs> going good. Thank you for that intro. Yes. Yeah, the dark side. That I can't believe you used that. I, literally just before the call. Oh, yeah, I was a founder and now joined the dark side in BC. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, it's all good, man. Before we go on, I am super excited to announce the last cohort of the Product-Led Growth Certificate Program that's happening for 2021. Now, master Product-Led Growth this November. This four-week live cohort program will show you exactly how to build a software that sells itself. We'll be going through some actionable frameworks that just works and will really help you accelerate the growth of your company. Through the program, you'll have opportunities to connect with high-caliber peers so you don't have to go through the product-led journey on your own. You'll be able to meet with experts who can really answer the toughest question you have about product-led growth. If you're ready to become a product-led growth certified professional, apply now at productled.com. Now, enrollment closes on Monday, October 25th, 2021. So hurry, apply now. The seats are first come, first serve. I'll see you there. It's cool that you're now working with several startups and seeing, I mean, that's you're an interesting position to be helping a lot of startups uh, drive growth. But mm. before you go there, I mean, let's talk about something fun uh, just for people to get to know you. You said that you love motorcycles. First of all, how many motorcycles do you have and which one? I, I know we, we were joking, like, you can't, tell, you can't ask that question. Just like asking a dad who their favorite child is, but I'm sure you have a favorite one that you, if you're tired, you're stressed yeah. out, you're going to ride it and you feel, feel energy as soon as you're on it. Yeah. So I love, I love motorcycles. And if, you know, I can speak about growth for a couple of hours without stopping, but I can speak for days about motorcycles without stopping. It's that dangerous. So good. <laughs> and right now I have uh, here where I live, I've got three motorcycles, which are all Harley Davidson's. Nice. And the, my favorite one, which I don't like to say, like it, it's, it is, I mean, you can ask me about my children next, right? But my favorite one is my latest one, which is a, a 42 flathead, well, from 1942. So it's an 80 year old motorcycle with a, a gear shift, a hand shifter, which is wonderful wow. to drive. So I live in Slovenia these days in the mountains and it's just beautiful riding in the, in the mountains, in the Alps with, uh, with an old motorcycle. I'm not sure if you know, I also have a motorcycle license and Harley Davidson is one of my, like I've been riding for yeah, 10 years, but, um, Fantastic. I'm meaning to get a Harley at some point. That's, that's yeah. my, my dream motorcycle. The sound, man, it's, it's a sound and the community around it. I find it's really interesting around Harleys. Oh, it's very interesting because most of them are over the age of 50. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> interesting. You're right. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh, it's a wonderful thing. So I actually, the reason I got so obsessed with motorcycles, I've loved them all my life, but being a founder and entrepreneur, I went through mm. this, it was about 10 years ago, actually. I was so stressed out almost. I mean, I ended up having burnout at one of my previous companies. Pre-burnout, uh, I found the only thing that kept me sane and away from my computer and my phone was hopping on a motorcycle and going for a ride. And I think that's one of the biggest things that anybody who's working now should think about is even now with pandemic and everybody being at home is what's that one thing you, that can get you away from your screen. And for me, it's motorcycles. Interesting. I love it. You're, you're totally right. It's just like, you're getting away from like, to your point, getting away from the screen, mm. 
Oh, I mean, we can. You're right. We can talk today. It's just the wind. It's the sound. It's the feeling that there's a bomb right between your legs. Yeah, <laughs> you have gasoline right. there. Oh man, let's 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 talk about growth. Let's talk about product-led growth, particularly. And one of the topics you wanted to talk about is the danger of premature growth. I mean, I love yeah. that because. Uh, you know, people like, oh, let's just hire a growth person and, and that would fix things. But you're you're saying, hey, wait, wait one second. There's the danger. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like the, what is the, the danger of premature growth? Yeah. So the, the concept of premature growth is, is, as you mentioned, people are obsessed with hiring and trying to grow as soon as possible. And the whole idea of premature growth is that you've got to take it easy. You've got to take it slow. It's not, you know, it's it's a marathon, not a race with having a business. And you've got to think carefully about every step you take. And it's easy for founders to become hoodwinked. They don't know what's going on around them. And they're just obsessed with getting sales, sales, sales. And a lot of the time you can just think, okay, the way to get more sales is for growth. And growth is not always the answer. Now, it's, it seems weird saying that from as being ahead of growth, but trying to just grow straight away is the easiest way to kill your company. And there was a study crunch base, I think it was a few years ago, like looking at the reason why most startups fail. And number one was there was no market need. And that is exactly the reason why this whole idea of premature growth is there. You can't, if you start introducing PLG, if you start trying to build growth funnels and all this for a market that does not exist or completely the wrong market, then you're essentially fucked. (laughs) You're doing all (laughs) this work for people that are not even going to use it. Mm -hmm. And I've seen actually a few companies that I've worked with in the past, even some that I've created, I've had this, we've just tried to make something work, then it's not going to work. And it all comes down to then kind of the the traditional routes that people talk about from go to market, product market fit and things like that. Now, product like growth doesn't get rid of those. You still Mm, need a good go to market strategy and you still need to have this uh, understanding of what product market fit means and all this lot. And product like growth is a way to enable that and to make it easier right? It's not a way to replace it. And it's one of the things I I cringe every time I see somebody saying, oh, we don't have a go-to-market strategy. We're product-led growth driven. Yeah, no. You know, the idea of a go-to-market strategy is actually understanding and finding out who your market is Mm. and then how to attack that market and get that market and attain that Mm. market. And yeah, so premature growth. Don't try to build your company (laughs) or try to grow your company when you're not ready. And I mean, one of the great examples of this actually is in one of my old companies. So I was uh, a company called OneTap. It's a bookkeeping accounting software for the UK market. And when we pre-launch, we had this idea that it's like, okay, we're bookkeeping for self-employed. Taxi drivers are going to love us. So our go-to-market strategy is to go for Uber drivers. And then we spent so much time in London hanging outside of the Uber offices like a bunch of crazies trying to get feedback and learnings and seeing what was happening. And we just about launched the product at this time. And taxi drivers were really loving the product. But then we found nobody was actually downloading and using it. So then after a few weeks, uh, we was like, okay, taxi drivers are actually the, the wrong market. And luckily, we you know we we had that idea of strong opinions weekly held. So we was like, okay, quickly, <laughs> let's find what the next market is. And we started looking at some of the data because, and this is actually one of the important things: is get your data right first before you launch the product. Looking at the data, we thought we saw oh, 
actors and entertainers are loving our product. That's a market we didn't know. So then we shifted our whole go-to-market strategy and our whole product and brand to entertainment industry. And then suddenly, this, this took like a six-month period to do. But then doing that, we just saw exponential growth. And it was insane. And it all goes down to just knowing who your market is and trying to build mm. around that market, as opposed to building the product, see who mm. uses it, and changing and twisting and trying to get a one-size-fits-all. And I know this is your area of expertise, <laughs> Ramley, all this onboarding uh, right. as well, right? How to customize onboarding based on segmentation and things like that. Mm. Because to go back into the, the idea of these, the entertainers, the thing we learned from this was the, the whole value proposition. Entertainers are all about they don't have much money, right? You don't get paid much being an actor or a struggling musician in London, right? So the idea is you've, they have all this time in the world, but they have no money to spend. So for them, the value proposition is money, save money, but give time to it. Then we found a second after we kind of penetrated that market. And then we looked at who else is using our product. Mm, it was uh, construction workers. What? Yeah. So construction workers <laughs> were our second biggest market. And they have the opposite problem. They have no time, but they have lots of money. So we essentially had to create two different onboardings and two different right. ways of using this product for two different markets. So yeah, I always come back to that example of why premature growth is something you need to be careful so, about because we could have still been building for Uber drivers a year later without even knowing <laughs> what so we true. was doing. I love that story. I mean, to your point, like, yeah, I see growth as fuel. It's fuel, right? And yeah. you need to have fire. I mean, you just throw fuel at like wet wood. <laughs> it's yeah, not yeah, going to matter much. much. Yeah. So, I mean, the question that fire that to your point is finding that market. I, I mm -hmm. heard that to you. Do you have any tips for founders now? Let's say they're pre-product market fit and they still yeah. haven't really figured out. What are some tips that you have for people who are tuning in right now to really like hone in on the right customer or the right market for them? Well, the most common thing I've seen among most founders and early stage companies is that they do not talk to the customers enough. And the amount of founders that I speak to who don't speak to their customers at all is insanely dangerous. Like how can you fix a problem to somebody that you don't even know? So that is the first thing I always recommend, right? Talk to as many customers or potential customers as you can. And then do the research to validate that idea, to validate your idea with them and think about what that validation would look like. Because the thing with growth is it's all about creating a hypothesis and a measurement of success and then testing that hypothesis. Does it fail? Does it succeed? And then going whichever way the answers show you. And you should do this always right before even launching a new feature or launching a new product. It's always the same concept. And the easiest way to do it for a lot of people is just to create some landing pages and run some Facebook ads. Right, That is the most easiest and basic way to do it. And it can teach you a lot. Now, to give you another story of a company, a friend's company, actually, last year, they had this idea of building a new product. It was kind of a dream they had, two guys, uh, two friends. And they were sitting on this idea for a while. And then they thought, okay, let's do it. We're in lockdown, nothing else to do. Let's see if this works. So the first thing they did is they created, they was like, okay, we want to see which country is the best market for us. So they ran some Facebook, they created a landing page with a basic signup, ran some Facebook ads, and they, they was hoping for the European market because that's where they're based. Turns out it's the US market. So it was the US market. Then they was like, okay, what segmentation of users are interested? Is it what's the age, location, 
gender interests and building down this kind of segmentation to see who is the most likely to buy their product. And they match this all about how many people signed up to their mailing list for their pre-product idea. And they came out with amazing results. They was getting leads for like a couple of cents each. It was insane. Wow. And they were like, yeah. And they were like, okay, (laughs) holy shit. There is a market here for this product. So then they was like, okay, let's see, will people actually pay for it though? Because, okay, we know we can, there's an element of product market fit here we can get, but is there economic fit? So then what they did is they created a fake Stripe page just to see if people would open their wallet and pay. Even though the checkout process failed, they just wanted to see, will people actually pay for this product or are they just interested out of interest? And suddenly people were trying to pay for it and they were like, holy crap, now we're onto something. So then they they had this list of a few thousand people and they sent them an email saying, build your own product. So they built a fake product with all the features so they could get a price point. So it was like the base price at this feature, this feature, this feature. And they was going in at like 200 euros, $200, sorry, thinking that's what people would pay. But everybody added all the features and it was suddenly a $400 product. And they were like, okay, this is really interesting. So... They carried on running ads and doing tests. And this was all from uh, August to October. And then they decided, okay, I will go to market. We're going to launch on Kickstarter. For no reason other than a friend said, why don't you do Kickstarter? So they was like, all right, let's launch the product on Kickstarter. So at this point, they had 50,000 people signed up for the product. So they thought, okay, let's do a Kickstarter campaign for 50,000 people, uh, $50,000 to get. Then what they did is they asked their 50,000 people because they needed money for ads to run for the Kickstarter campaign. Okay, will will you pre-buy your our product uh, for $20 to at least make sure you're on the list to get one? And 5,000 people give them $20, wow. uh, which gave them then the capital to launch the, uh, so the campaign cool. on Kickstarter. Yeah. And they ended up raising half a million dollars on their first day wow. and closing That's the cool. round on wow. Kickstarter at $6 million which is insane. And strangely enough, this is a product that for most of us probably isn't the most exciting, but it is a, a bird feeder, yeah, an interactive oh, wow. bird feeder. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> so it just goes right. to show, right, there's a lot you can do with the power of just researching and looking into what the customers are interested in and just fine-tuning that because then when you build a product and you launch it, not only do you have the people there ready to buy it, but you know you've, you can essentially kickstart your way to that product market fit and then start with that growth. And then if you introduce that with product-led growth, holy shit, you're onto a winner, especially with digital products, right? That's it, golden. So that's the dream. It's easier said than done though. So true. I mean, that's such a great example. And one thing I love about that is you're always trying to find the riskiest assumption and they're risking it with some kind of action, right? They're trying to mm-hmm. talk or like try, try to put up something and such a good example around that. Yeah. I'm going to jump now. So, okay, we got that. Somebody has product market fit. Now let's talk about go-to-market strategies, right? And you were talking a little bit about that already. Can mm-hmm. you describe how you start thinking about that for companies who have hit product market fit or maybe even they're close to it? And now they're mm-hmm. thinking, well, how do we bring this to market <laughs> in a very smart, efficient, and good way? Yeah, well... The thing with the go-to-market strategy and the crazy misconception here is that you create a go-to-market strategy and you execute it and you're done and that's it. You're done and dusted, which is ridiculous. That's not the case. 
So basically, you should break down a go-to-market strategy for each essential, like each small market you're going for. So if you think about it in the terms of like Facebook, right, their go-to-market strategy was like, okay, let's get one university on, let's get a second university on, let's get a group of universities on, let's get all the US universities on. Now, each step there is essentially a new go-to-market strategy. And that's the way you need to think about it. It's not, we're going to go and take over America. We're going to take over university Mm. by university. (laughs) Same with Uber, right? Their go-to-market strategy was, let's start in San Francisco, and then let's go to a new town, a new city, and another city, and another city. And each of those cities was a new go-to-market strategy. Mm. And if you break it down into these smaller targets, it's a lot easier to then achieve and to understand. And if not, it's easier to shift away from. Now, if you look back at my Uber example with my company, suddenly we realize, okay, this is not a market <laughs> for us. This is not going to happen. So, if, But imagine we just said, let's do this for everybody in the UK or everybody in London. It would be harder to understand these smaller markets that are not working. And you want to be able to quickly shut them off and make these small pivots and incremental changes as they happen. So that's the first thing with a go-to-market strategy is don't try and take on the world. Just try and focus on one area that you know you can take down. You can own that market, right? And focus on winning that. Once you've got market penetration and people are happy and you've got that kind of all the engine running and ticking over nicely, people are happy coming back and the whole PLG side of it is working and you, you you don't have to go through all this heavy lifting, then you look to a new market. And you just start slowly increasing your reach that way. Mm. I love how like that's like piece by piece. You know, like, oh, mm-hmm. often I hear people say is yes, we're trying to target everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody, every like, and what you're saying is like, man, like different people have different needs. They might connect with different value points. And mm-hmm. you're really trying to hone that in specifically. And love that you applied it to your product. That's a common mistake that I see. I mean, I'm sure mm-hmm. you've worked with hundreds of other companies at Speed Invest. Are there other mistakes that you see over and over again when they're thinking about their go-to-market strategy? I mean, I mentioned it already. The big one is that, especially when you've got an investor, you're under so much pressure to get money, right? As an investor, all we care about is how can we get more money? How can we take you to your next round? So we try to do that as successfully as we can. And that pressure when you put it on a founder can usually mean just let's make more sales. And the more sales doesn't necessarily always mean more success because you might be, you know, being able to sell something well, but what do the churn rates look like and so on. So the other thing as well here is actually people try to expand their market reach in order just to get more sales because they think, okay, if we can get 5% of a pool of a half a million people, that's a lot more money than getting 50% of a small pool of like a thousand people. But the problem is, is how many people are happy <laughs> out of that pool? And that's essentially what you're looking for. And that's the whole the whole idea of this is how can you deliver on that value? How can you understand what people's pain points are, deliver on that value, make them happy and make them tell their friends, stick around and appreciate your products and essentially be an evangelist of your product. Mm, really love that. That's it, right? You just, you got to think about it that way. How can you get them to love your products, not just buy it uh, because mm. you're a good salesman? You're getting to the heart of growth because often people hire growth to top of the funnel. Let's just get more signups. And you're really getting at, mm. man, growth is 
about return. It's about yeah. those people who really freaking love your product, right? Like, is that like, that's what you're getting at with this? That, that true growth, especially if it's SaaS, is about getting people to really freaking love it and use it and tell people about your product. Absolutely. I mean, the most common way to explain this is if you try to acquire new customers to a product that isn't loved or isn't finished or not for the right market, you're essentially filling a bucket full of holes and all that water is just going to pour away and you're not going to get that water back. And it's the same thing with your customers, right? If your product isn't ready, if your onboarding sucks, if retention sucks, if you've got a really high churn rate, it doesn't matter how much money you pump into acquisition. It's just not going to work. You're just wasting money. So yeah, you've got to think about the whole thing. And this is the whole idea of building a product that sells itself, right? If you focus on just getting the users in and the wrong users as well, because you never quite know at this stage, then you know, you're pissing money away. It's not a safe thing to do. I really, really, really love that. In terms of other, I mean, you've already talked about the best practice. You talked about common mistakes. Are there other things that you would fine tune in really like focusing in? Like you've already talked about like geography. Are, are there other things that they should think about in terms of segmenting who they're approaching in terms of their go-to-market strategy? I mean, there's a lot of differences. It can be by city, by city, by region, by state, by country, but there's a lot of cultural differences as well that people need to look into. Even down to, like, if you're looking at products that are going to different countries, color themes can be different. People can have different representations of color. And these are all things you need to understand before going to them. So that's one thing to always look out for. The other thing as well is the whole idea of finding product market fit and actually, well, defining product market fit is is the first critical thing because there's no one size fits all with product market fit. There's frameworks out there to try and help you find product market fit, but you've got to know your business first before you can actually create what that is. And finding that product market fit for that specific market is a critical thing to do. Then not only finding product market fit, but keeping product market fit Mm, is also incredibly important. And that's one thing most people fail to do. And I mean, there's different ways just to kind of touch on product market fit now, right? Product market fit is, it's an elusive term and people try to understand it. Not many people do. It's a lot like sex in high school, right? Everybody's talking about it. Not many people get it. <laughs> and it's funny because if you look at it from from like <laughs> giggling you should away. tweet that. All right. So you last year, <laughs> I mean, the, there's some great examples of this product market effect. Last year, Quibi, right? The short form video. Oh my uh, goodness! App yeah. For the phone. Yeah. They essentially tried to buy product market fit. And look at how bad that failed. It doesn't matter how much money you have behind you or the team you have behind you, you can't fake it. Don't try and buy product market fit. It's not going to happen. Then you have the the crazy world of MySpace. Now, MySpace, if you remember back then, many, many years ago, MySpace had product market fit. They owned it. They had a really good product market fit. Everybody was on it. I was watching Supernatural, catching up on Supernatural the other day, and somebody gave their MySpace address as a date. I'm like crazy. And that, I kind of remember that was a thing. But the problem with them is they got very cocky. They were being sold and didn't really keep up with the market. The market changed. Spotify came out, Facebook came out, YouTube came out, and all these other areas and sites became more popular. And, my, and MySpace just were unable to roll with the punches. And well, sure enough, they disappeared pretty quickly. And then you get people like Facebook, 
and they found product market fit 10, 12 years ago with the universities. And then they went country by country and with the universities and, and so on. And they found product market fit. They were able to grow. And now they're able to attain product market fit because as soon as something like Snapchat comes up or Instagram comes up, they either try to buy them or copy them. So they really are able to move with the transition of the market over the years. So yeah, you've got to think about that from your side as well is, yes, you've built a great engine for your product. It's selling itself. But what about when the market changes? Mm. You've got to be open to that and think, okay, market fit can change. And if and, and I mean, a great example of this is over the last year, Interesting. Airbnb had amazing product market fit until suddenly there was nowhere to go. Right, the market doesn't have anywhere to go anymore. So, what does Airbnb do? They need to roll with the punches. They need they need to change to what they're actually doing and what their value proposition is. So, suddenly, Airbnbs you saw them make all these little tiny pivots and tweaks last year to suddenly like, hey, go away and stay with your family on a vacation somewhere to work remotely. And the whole value proposition changed from rather than taking a vacation, why don't you work from somewhere else? And they were able to kind of change and stay with the market as it evolved before they lost the market fit and they lost even more revenue. I mean, it it killed them anyway, but uh, they were able to bounce back pretty well from that. Mm. I love that. That's something that people don't talk often enough is that product market, you can lose PMF, like you can really lose the market. Mm -hmm. To your point, market can shift. I love that example with really with Airbnb. And that's, that's really why it's so important to be continually have a good growth or and user research process is like you're trying to always be finding market. Would you say it's always, it should be an ongoing thing or would you say like at some point, like you're good and done and you should just, it's all good. <laughs> oh, you're never good and done. And that's the whole <laughs> idea with growth, right? It's, it's not only growing even, it's retaining. And this is where the, you know, when you're looking at a product-led growth company, you've got to make sure that you understand and you're tracking all the different elements of the customer journey and seeing all the different touch points and how does it change over time? Is it a seasonal product? And, you know, or is it a product that, you know, is the market shifting? Is there competitors coming up and you're seeing a behavior in the patterns and usage? And you've got to be able to change your product as you learn from that. And that's why the whole idea of getting your data in line, like I mentioned earlier, getting your data lined up very early on, pre-product if you can, with all the events and all the metrics lined up can be a lifesaver without you even knowing it. I love it. I really do love it. I want to start wrapping up and ask you a question around if you had one or two pieces of advice like to give to product-led leaders right now, people who are tuning in, they can be in growth, they can be a product. Some of them are founders. What would be that one or two pieces of advice you'd like to give to them? Oh, well, now that I just mentioned it, I would say the first piece of advice would be around data. The best thing I ever did before launching a product, I hired a BI guy to come in just for a couple of weeks. And he helped us map out all the different events of the user journey for our first product launch. And that paid so many dividends down the line. So I would say the first bit of advice for anybody is to make sure you have all your tracking analytics in place. If you're still very early stage, hire a BI person to come in for a few weeks. It will make all the difference because it's easy to track. And there's this whole idea of analysis paralysis. If you start tracking everything, you don't know where to start. A BI team will help you understand that data and actually create something actionable from it. And the best way to explain this is that imagine you have an orchestra and there's just like 200 musicians there 
and you tell them to play music. And like each one of these instruments is a different point that you're tracking and you tell everybody to play at once and play a song, it's just going to sound like a fucking mess, right? It's not going to make music. However, if you give them sheet music, which is your user journey, and you get them to play from the sheet music, all these instruments and all these metrics and data points suddenly start coming in and singing together and playing together, and you get beautiful music. And it's easy to see what happens and where it happens. So think of your data as an orchestra. Make sure you have it all lined up, all the instruments lined up to sheet music. Love it, man. Thank you so much. One final question. Where can people find out more about you and the work that you do online? Do you want them, if you have follow-up questions, do you want them to add you on LinkedIn or Twitter or do you have a newsletter? No, I like to be left alone. No, <laughs> no. Uh, people can reach out to me anywhere. I'm usually on LinkedIn. Uh, so you can find me on LinkedIn. Just search my name, John Butterfield. Or find me through Speedinvest, speedinvest.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, John. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. 